Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week we're continuing our series in the book of Romans called Lifestyle of the Gospel. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, as Dr. Neufeld brings us a message entitled, Citizens of Two Kingdoms, Part 1. I have at times been asked how I feel about my country. I usually respond by saying, well, it's kind of complex. You know, on the one hand, I'm truly and deeply grateful for the nation in which I live. My nation affords me the freedom to worship and to evangelize, free from legal reprisals. I like to remind both myself and others that what I and my fellow Christian citizens enjoy is rare and should be savored. As an example, I mean, did you know that church property in this country is considered private property? So if someone comes and creates a disturbance in your church property, you can have police remove them much the same way as if someone entered your home and created a disturbance there. We do have protections. I'm aware that many of our long-held protections are presently under fire, but still, Christians are given the freedom to lobby our government, to press our matters in the court. We need, I think, to be aggressive and fight for our freedoms in ways that are legal, and also insist that our rights are protected. And so, yes, all that to say I'm deeply grateful and I'm thankful for my country. But as I said, it's a bit complex. I'm often not proud of my country. I mean, how should I be when the murder of unborn children is celebrated as a great achievement in this land? I mean, how am I to be proud when the country in which I live champions ways of living that often lead to personal hurt and ruin? You know, I, for my part, make a distinction between thankfulness and patriotism. Let me explain that. I am deeply thankful for my nation, and I also seek the good of my nation. That's my commitment as a believer. But I am worried about the kind of patriotism that causes us to abandon Christian principles. But as I said, it's a complex matter, and I like to remind myself that this world is not my home and that the kingdoms of this world are not the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. You know, I will be a great patriot when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom and all unrighteousness ends and the glory of the one true God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. I'm saying all these things as a part of my introduction to what the Bible says about how Christians are to live in a non-Christian state. We're studying Romans 12 to 16. It's a section of scripture that I have called the lifestyle of the gospel. On the basis of the good news that Christ in mercy has rescued us from our sins, has given us the Holy Spirit, Paul is describing to Christians how we are to live. At first, he begins with our relationship to God. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then Paul moves to the fundamentals of humility. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Don't think too highly of yourself. Then Paul tells us that as the Christian lifestyle is to be lived in community, that Christians are members of one another, that we are to live our lives in the community of God's people, the church. Next, Paul moves to describe how we are to respond to our enemies. And now, when we come to Romans 13, he describes how we are to interact with the state, our nation, our government, to civil authorities in general. Now, if you think about it, the early Christians would have had reasons to wonder how they were to think about governing authorities. You know, on the one hand, they would have been taught that Jesus Christ was King of kings and Lord of lords and that he was coming back to establish his kingdom 
and that all the kings and rulers of this earth would one day bow down before him. See, from that vantage point, they might have thought that they should oppose the state. And that would have made even more sense because the Roman state was often hostile to believers. Many Christians died a martyr's death. And furthermore, the state had ideals like the worship of the Roman gods, like the title Lord for Caesar, like the open acceptance of sexual immorality. I mean, on and on it goes. And against this kind of background, Paul writes the Roman Christians with very clear instructions. So I'm reading Romans 13:1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You know, over the many years since Paul wrote those instructions, there have been a great many different models of the relationship of the church to the state. At times, the state has demanded that it control the church of Jesus. And at other times, the church has managed either to control the state or to exert a great deal of influence on the state. At other times, even while the state has been viewed as distinct or separate from the church, the state has favored the church, providing the church with a great deal of benefits. And in our day, we still have, shall I say, a hangover from those days. Churches still enjoy tax advantages because the state felt that the existence of the church provided good to the society as a whole. But as Bob Dylan once sang, the times they are a-changing. I think we are now at a place in which the separation of the church and the state has meant that the state has viewed the church with ever-increasing suspicion, and the conflict between church and state has been inevitable. And today and tomorrow, as we continue to discuss the Christian lifestyle, we're going to look at how God has ordained for Christians to live when we live among the nations. We will try to ask ourselves what this text actually meant when it was written and what we are to take from that text today. What is the Christian lifestyle in relation to country politics? Are we radicals? Are we supporters of the state? Are we patriots, you know, God and country? What is our role? If you think about it, the New Testament church was not alone in its dealings with a hostile power. I mean, read through the book of Daniel, and one quickly gets a profile of Israel living under a hostile power. See, there we find a young Daniel utterly refusing to eat the king's food, and then an old Daniel utterly refusing to pray to the king. And yet we also find Daniel occupying a high political office and and even blessing both the king of Babylon and then later the kings of the Medo-Persian Empire that had defeated the Babylonians. And that's to say, Daniel sought to bring blessings to Babylon. And then when Babylon fell, 
He sought to bless the nation that had defeated the Babylonians. And so you can easily see that that Daniel's not a patriot in the traditional sense of the word. In contrast, Daniel was a patriot to his God and the kingdom of his God. But he also sought to bless the nation which ruled over him. And so there were times in Israel's history where the king who ruled over the Jews was not the son of David. And there were other times in the national life of Israel where the goals of the nations who ruled them were diametrically opposed to the designs of the kingdom of God. But in those times, Israel discovered that Yahweh, the God of Israel, did not just rule over Israel, but he ruled over all the kingdoms of this earth. We might remember Daniel 4, verse 17, where where Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon that, and I quote him, the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. I mean, this thought that it is God who sets up rulers and deposes them at his will. This is brought into the New Testament. I mean, consider Acts 4, 27 to 28. The Christian church prayed, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. I mean, clearly the early church believed that the governing authorities, even when they conspired to crucify Jesus, could only act within the parameters of authority in which God permitted and ordained for them to act. That is, the early church believed that the government was from God. And so it seems to me that you can't read Romans 13 without assuming that background, that that wealth of biblical teaching, that, that God reigns and sets up rulers and nations and then deposes rulers and nations according to his will and design. Given that the Bible teaches that God sets up nations and rulers at will, then it's also true that rulers are sometimes good to God's people, sometimes they're not. And Romans 13 is so very important for every believer. It will cure us of being perpetual critics of our country, but it will also cure us of blind allegiance to our country. We will not confuse the aims of our nation with the aims of the kingdom of God. By the time you hear this, Christmas excitement has already begun to fill the air. Our Yuletide expectations are seeded by childhood memories, media hype, vendor advertising, and church traditions. We forecast Christmas with such heightened hopes that can often disappoint Christmas morning. Well, this month, Dr. John shares a new Christmas series called The Hope of the Ages, presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of God's intent. Jesus, the fulfillment of our Christmas aspirations, the hope of the ages. It's a message that must be shared year-round, and your partnership makes that possible. Thanks for all you do, and please continue to stand with us as we strive toward our year-end goal of $490,000 by December 31st. Just call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to make your gift today. There may be an immediate context to Romans 13 that should not go unnoticed. 
Acts 18 verse 2 tells us that during the reign of the Roman Emperor Claudius, he had ordered the Jews to leave Rome. Now, just so we get the chronology right, Paul writes the book of Romans while the Emperor Nero is in office. Nero became the emperor after the death of Claudius. And so when Paul wrote Romans, the expulsion of the Jews had already happened as well as that the Roman government had, by the time of the writing of Romans, allowed the Jews to return. So let's get back to Claudius's edict to banish the Jews. The Roman historian Suetonius said that the reason why Claudius had banished the Jews from Rome had something to do with an unrest in the city of Rome among the Jews. Suetonius said that the unrest had something to do with a man he calls Crestus. You know, it seems likely that Suetonius was referring to Christ. Now, that's all that Suetonius said, and we're left to fill in the details by ourselves. But here's what I think is likely. Christ was being preached in Rome, and this preaching happened first in the Jewish community. It created an outrage, a civil disturbance. Claudius, realizing that the preaching of Christ was creating controversy among the Jewish community, decided just to end the controversy by banishing all Jews from the city, an act that would have meant that the Roman Christian church suddenly had all Jewish Christians forcibly removed from their congregation. Now, years later, these same Jews would have been allowed to return to Rome, but the church would never have forgotten this harsh lesson. The Roman emperor had a great deal of power over the Roman Christian church. From that, we must see that when Paul writes the Roman church, it's not sheer speculation or a sterile philosophical debate about the relationship between the church and the state. See, he's writing to a church that has felt the state interfere in the business of the church, and they had all suffered because of it. And furthermore, it would soon become apparent just how much power the emperor had. The new emperor was a man named Nero. I will say a little bit more about that later, but to put it mildly, Nero was a madman. You know, Paul begins his instructions by issuing a universal command to every single Christian. Submit, he says, to the governing authorities. You're not leading a political movement in which you seek to undermine the state. Instead, he says, and I'm reading the first part of verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. The word that is translated be subject means to have an attitude of voluntarily giving in or of cooperating. And as we work our way through this passage, we're going to see that it means not begrudgingly doing so but actually honoring the state, esteeming the state. And just so we know, it's not just Paul who insists on this. Peter did the same. I'm reading 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, from my mindset, the fact that Paul writes this when Nero ruled, it's hard to avoid. Nero was a madman. Although this had not yet happened, in only a few years, Nero set fire to his neighborhood. He burned down houses around the royal palace in order to make room for a planned expansion to his palace. Well, that fire burned out a good section of Rome. And in order to cover his tracks, Nero blamed it on the Christians. 
He then began to cruelly treat Christians. He, he would tie Christians to poles and, and cover them with pitch and, and burn them and provide light to the evening activities in the palace. And furthermore, it was Nero who would oversee the, the executions of both Paul and Peter. I mean, this man was a very dangerous madman. And it is this fact of history that has led many Bible teachers to puzzle over these words. Would Paul have written these same words even a decade later when Nero had undertaken such outrages? And the answer is an overwhelming yes. This is a universal command to every believer, submit to governing authorities. Now, before we try to understand why I said it's a universal command, let's just pause for a moment and understand that we live in a very different political environment than the early Christians lived in back then. I mean, criticism of the government in our country, well, that's not a crime. It's considered a necessary feature of democracy. You know, at election time, we as Christians, well, we're not bound to vote for the party in power as an act of submission. I mean, you can be a Christian in full compliance with Romans 13 and actively be advocating the defeat of the government in power, provided it's done through the means of democracy provided for in our laws. See, there's a vast difference between submission and agreement. See, in order to understand that, it's necessary for us to understand the, the ordained limits of this command. That is the command to submit. See, no Bible text tells us everything about every given situation. That's why, that's why we need the whole Bible. So let me take you back to the very beginnings of the Christian church. The apostles after the resurrection of Jesus began to preach that, that this Jesus who the chief priests and the authorities had crucified, this Jesus was in fact Lord and Christ. I mean, this brought a very direct response. The apostles were called upon by order of the Jewish ruling council to stop preaching this way. And to the apostles, this law coming from the governing authorities was to be defied. I'm reading Acts 5, 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. There are numerous biblical examples of disobeying the government. When the Hebrew midwives were ordered to kill baby boys, they disobeyed. When Nebuchadnezzar ordered people to bow down to a statue on the plains of Dura, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobeyed. When Darius commanded that for 30 days all must pray to him, Daniel disobeyed. See, there's a hierarchy of commands. Not every command occupies an equal place in order of that hierarchy. The commands of God in which our loyalty and obedience to him are demanded, those commands always trump the commands of the state. I'll say it again. God's commands are higher commands. But in this matter, we need to take care. Christians, as a part of our lifestyle, we're not looking to disobey the governing authorities. We obey the state right up to a given point or up to a given boundary. Whenever obedience to the state entails disobedience to God at that very point, and only at that very point, Christians are called upon then to disobey the state. And when we say no to the government, we're not cavalier about saying no, nor are we strident or anarchist. Rather, we disobey, listen, with respect. We never tell the state we don't respect you. Rather, we continue to stress to the state that it is our basic impulse to be in compliance to the state. We might even plead with the state, please, 
don't make us into rebels. Construct laws that do not violate our obligations to our God. And if you do, we will do all that we can to bless the state. We are not your enemies. So as an example, let me tell you about one of the women who once joined Back to the Bible Canada as a part of our Israel experience. When our group got to Israel, I found out that one of our guests, an older woman, had been raised in Holland while the Nazis were rounding up Jews and sending them to concentration camps. This woman's parents hid Jews in their home in direct disobedience to the authorities. Now, when we got to Israel, this elderly woman of Dutch descent met with an elderly woman of Jewish descent because that Jewish woman had been one of the young girls that Dutch family had saved from Nazi extermination. I was honored to watch those two women interact. It was a, a witness to civil disobedience, a disobedience that saved lives. But this speaks about the complicated relationship that all Christians have to governing authorities. It was the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, in the time of the Nazis, he said, no man deserves to be called Fuhrer except for Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you have trouble with that, compare that to the response of the early church. The Roman authorities said that Caesar is Lord, to which Christians responded by saying, Jesus Christ alone is Lord. In essence, that was civil disobedience. The place where Christians defy the law is only when the law forbids us from exercising our faith. When the Roman authorities demanded that all citizens of the empire should pour out libations to Caesar, Christians refused. But in every other case, they submitted gladly and honored the government under which they lived. John, I think this is a huge issue, and, and I appreciate the fact that you clarified made it very straightforward that really our allegiance to our country is really superseded by our allegiance to God. God always comes first. Um, you know, it, it's, I know it's very natural for everyone to feel very uh, positive about the country, especially uh, under a number of different contexts, but, and I, I'm not arguing against that. I'm simply saying that is not our hope. I, I love Daniel, you know, opening up his window, looking towards Jerusalem and praying in that direction. So, you know, he's the prime minister. Um, he's taking care of the political affairs of his nation, but his hope is in another place. And, and I think that's maybe a really good model for all of us. Let's, you know, let's serve our nation well. At the same time, let's not make this nation our hope. Our hope is in another place. Thanks so much, John. And we really look forward to tomorrow's message as we continue our series in the Book of Romans right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The Advent season is a special time of year, but it can get lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. This month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as they walk us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with an Advent celebration video series. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill His purpose for our lives. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, 
Let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy in challenging days. Share the good news to those in need of renewed hope. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.